think it's uh, it starts probably with a willingness to always be learning and not assume that you ever have it figured out. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Guild Stories, the podcast where every person has a story, and it's the stories that connect us all. I'm Justin Rickliffs, founder and CEO of Guild Content, husband of Brooke, and father of five young people. And I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, who happens to be my wife as well. Hey, guys, I'm Brooke, owner of Reclaim the Home, Justin's wife and mother of five. We're so grateful you're here. This podcast is a place where we'll explore the stories of hustlers, dreamers, and doers who are going for it by pursuing meaningful work and living life with purpose. Welcome to Guild Stories. All right, guys, today's story is a fascinating one. We're joined today by a leader who is stacking up the accolades, yet you would likely never um, hear them because he won't tell them on his own. So we'll talk about some of those for him. Uh, he has been described by folks on his team as a servant leader, humble, and a true visionary in his field. Dr. Jeremy Tucker joins us today. Dr. Tucker is the superintendent of Liberty Public Schools, one of the largest in the state of Missouri with 19 schools under his leadership. Last year, he was named as the superintendent of the year by the Missouri Association of School Administrators. And Dr. Tucker also has the fine privilege of keeping five Rickliffs children in check every day. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Tucker, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here uh, this morning with you both. Jeremy, so glad we're ha to have you here. Uh, can't wait to unpack your story. First, could you give us a little background info, maybe where you grew up? Yeah, so my story is a little unique. Um, I was actually born in Missouri, and uh, pretty shortly thereafter, my parents um, were appointed as missionaries in West Africa. Oh, wow. And so we left the United States when I was just a year old and traveled to France, where they spent a year for language school as they were studying French. And then they took my brother and I to the country of Upper Volta, uh, which actually no longer exists. Upper Volta is now Burkina mm. Faso. And for people that kind of have the western side of Africa in their mind, um, it sits directly above Ghana. So we were missionaries there for about 14 years wow. and then came back to the United States. Uh, my parents took on a different position um, within that organization. And so then we relocated to the Springfield, Missouri area. So that's a little wow. bit about my upbringing. So, so yeah. your your formative years were in, in, Africa. in Africa. Yeah, all in Africa. We would go over for four years, um, spend a four-year term, and then come back for a year. Wow. And we did a lot of fundraising to support that work. And so we'd spend a year fundraising and then go back for four years. And we repeated that up until the time I was ready for high school um, and came back to the United States for high school. What was schooling like? That was interesting. So my mom was my teacher. Um, I was actually homeschooled. We lived in a small village, and then we lived in an even smaller village wow. in the Sahara Desert. Um, but my mom was my homeschool teacher, taught my brother as well. And then we moved to a capital city um, when I was in around fourth grade. And so for a few years, ended up going to an international school, mm. the International School of Ouagadougou, um, which was an American curriculum, but it had about 90 kids, grades, kindergarten through eighth grade, uh, but of those 90 students, they represented about 65 different countries. Um, so it was pretty multicultural experience growing up. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Do That's you speak more than one language? So, yeah, I learned English, French, and then Moray all at around the same time uh, when I was growing up. And, of course, speak more English now, but every now and then we'll talk with my, uh, talk with my brother and my parents as far as, you know, French and Moray. My kids and my wife have picked up a little bit along the way. So, wow. yeah. 
How neat. It's a little rusty. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know what moray. So moray is actually, is. no, you're good. No one really does. Moray is actually an African dialect. So it's a tribal dialect um, in kind of Western Africa. And there's there are several languages that have some similarities. So if you think of like Cajun in French yeah. versus France versus Quebec, I mean, there's variations of French. So that's that's really kind of a tribal dialect in the area we grew up in. That's awesome. What a deal. Yeah. So so we, we, we mentioned in the intro, you know, the today reality is superintendent of the year. And, and we'll, we'll get into all of that. But trace us back to kind of the start of your education career or journey. I mean, sure. maybe it tracks back all the way to West Africa. It actually probably does. So I was either destined to be a preacher, a teacher, or a car salesman, I guess, <laughs> um, with my parents and their work. But I actually had a history teacher when I was in school at the International School, a guy by the name of Pete Larson, mm. uh, who was not only a history teacher, but he was also a principal. And um, just a super guy. I had his wife as an elementary school teacher. And so growing up, wasn't quite sure exactly what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to pursue chemistry um, when I was in high school because I worked at a pharmacy. Um, started that as a chemistry degree in college and realized that that wasn't my forte. And I ended up shifting midstream to history. And there's not a whole lot you can do with history um, in terms of teaching or museum curatorship. Um, but I got my history and teaching credential. And then when I graduated, I was applying for a couple of school districts, but then I also had an application filled out for the National Park Service, thinking that I would you know, spend some time in the woods and be Ranger Rick or something. <laughs> Turns out I ended up getting placed in um, a school district that I student taught in. So I taught history for about six years, uh, coached boys and girls tennis, and nice. was approached one day by a principal uh, by the name of John Hetherington, who asked me if I would be interested in an administrative vacancy. And I hadn't yet started my graduate work or had any aspiration to do that at the time. I was only in my second year of teaching. And I asked him, I said, point blank, I said, I don't think I'm qualified. And so that door closed, but then I, it started getting me thinking about pursuing an administrative degree. And so I did that and then held an assistant principal role, principal, and then moved into the superintendency several years later. As your career has grown, one of the mottos we have here at Guild is go for it. What, yeah. what adversities have you had to work through along the way as you've navigated and grown in your career? Uh, adversity, that, that's interesting. In that There's hardly a day goes by where there's not <laughs> adversity um, when you're working with young people or just people in general and that you're always um, tending to their needs and serving. Um, so I think it's twofold. I think it's partly the adversity that you experience personally or individually, but then it's also the adversity that you help others walk through. And it sounds simplistic, but it could be a, a young person having a hard day and the adversity that they face. But then it can also be a bigger community issue, or it can be, as a leader, the personal adversity that you deal with that people may not often see. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of experiences over 23 years that I could point to with that um, probably the greatest adversity that we've walked through, and I say we as a family, um, would probably be my wife's um, diagnosis with cancer three mm -hmm. years ago. Um, we left our families in the Springfield area and moved up to Liberty, and then shortly thereafter, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and you would think that you would want to be closer to home with family surrounding you, but we wouldn't have it any other way as far as being in Liberty. Um, because of our community, because of our neighborhood, because of our school district, our church family, 
um, we wouldn't have it any other way. So this is home for us. That's really neat to hear. Yeah, that's yeah. powerful. Thanks for sharing. My my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer. Jeez, um, six years ago, eight years ago, <laughs> four, four. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and and similar, she's from the Kansas City area, but they live in Columbia, mm-hmm. and she would echo the same sentiment is that she's gone through this incredibly tough, painful journey and oftentimes humiliating journey. Um, But her community has, has solidified uh, in in many ways her recovery. And, and I'm I'm grateful you'd, you'd share that. I I know it's, it's been a tough road. Um, So speaking of Liberty, so you, you've been the superintendent here for how many years? Tell us that story. Like what, 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 kind of brought about the change from moving from the Springfield area to yeah. to this community. So before we moved here, I was in the Logan Rogersville School District, which is where I had student taught. I was a teacher there, an administrator there. Um, I kind of got my feet wet in education in that school district. I left for a period of time and was in uh, Buffalo, Missouri, and then returned to Rogersville. But most recently, where we is moved. Buffalo, Missouri? Buffalo, Missouri is about 30 uh, minutes north of Springfield. Okay. Okay. So it's actually directly east of Bolivar. A lot of people Got know where it. Bolivar yep. is. Yeah. Um, so Buffalo's not too far from there. But um, when we left Rogersville to head this direction, we really had no uh, intent of, of leaving, um, but then heard about this opportunity and had some conversations with um, some mentors, had some board members that were reaching out to superintendents across Missouri um, during their search. And so they stumbled on my name and gave me a call and asked if I wanted to walk through this process um, and just felt like it was the right thing to at least explore. Mm. And so we started walking through that process and came up here for a series of interviews and brought my wife and kind of checked out the area. And then just the right doors opened up for us to be able to move our family to Liberty. So we're starting our sixth year um, in this role now. And my daughter is a high school freshman and my a son is a middle school sixth grader. So this is the year of transition for our family. Well, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the the opportunity was obviously compelling enough to, to leave home in many instances. It's not West Africa home, but um, right. but you're you're in liberty now. What what was appealing about the opportunity, about the maybe the challenges or the, the and, and where we'd love to go is kind of this it's Walk us through these first six years of your leadership in, in the sense of what needed to happen, what was already great and in place, what big challenges were kind of on the horizon for sure. the district, and, and how have you tackled those and, and, and faced those head on? So Liberty has a unique history um, of having incredibly high expectations um, and obvious continued growth um, as we look at the Liberty surrounding area. So then I would say that it's transitioned or it's really changed over the last six years. When I first showed up, you know, five, six years ago, I think my emphasis was really on building relationships. Um, and my predecessor, who's a close friend of mine, uh, Dr. Jungman, um, had an opportunity that opened up in Springfield. So he departed, uh, I think, a little sooner than he had anticipated um, to pursue that opportunity. So then really it was about getting to know Liberty and building relationships. But at the same time, not slowing down per se or thinking through what our future possibilities could look like um, as a school district. So working a strategic plan that um, the administration had just recently created back then um, and effectuating that plan to building relationships, you know, steering culture, um, 
but then also leaning on our board and our teachers and our leaders in terms of informing our next steps. And so that strategic plan has now come to a close. We walked through uh, just this last spring um, another strategic planning process to be able to chart the course for the next several years, and we look forward to sharing that with our community in the coming weeks. That's cool. That's cool. And and I think um, as we've gotten to know you and watch and observe your leadership, um, it, it's it's at least appears to us. And Brooke has an interesting perspective from you know a mother of of children who have gone through this the district and specifically this elementary school here in Liberty, who's gotten some national attention, epic. Um, sure. Tell us kind of as you've seen the, even not only the, the city and the community and the district changing, but education as a whole is under this radical transformation. Right. <laughs> like what, right. how do you, I mean, as the, as the top of the food chain of a, of a community asset as educators, how do you navigate such a changing environment? I think it's, uh, it starts probably with a willingness to always be learning and not assume that you ever have it figured out. Um, I love that. That's right? so great. So whether it's as a dad or a mom, um, things look different today than they did when you all or I was a kid. And so I can't come into it with a presupposition that things are the same. And so that starts with my willingness, your willingness to be able to absorb and be a sponge and learn and continue to grow from here until the time they bury us, right? Um, so I think that's just a cultural piece that's important important for us to keep in mind. So whether you're a classroom teacher, whether you're an administrator, whether you're a board member or a custodian or a cook or a bus driver, um, there's always more to learn. I think that's kind of foundational. But then on top of that, we probably need to layer in the fact that we have nearly 13,000 individual lives that are all unique. And so whether it's your, you have 12 kids, <laughs> your five kids, or my two kids it feels like it <laughs> at times, I'm sure there's a multiplier. That's right. Um, whether it's your five kids or my two kids in school, I want what's best for my two unique ones at home as you mm. all want what's best for your five unique ones at your home. So then multiply that out 13,000 times. Jeez. So it's really how can we tailor a learning experience and personalize it for every single kid? whether it's pre-K, elementary, middle school, or high school. Um, and that's what we're embarking to try to figure out. And that we'll have kids that work and go straight from high school into the workplace. We'll have kids that go to a two-year college or a four-year college or do a study abroad or have an internship or apprenticeship experience. Um, so how can we create those opportunities for them in high school so that they can somewhat play in the sandbox and experiment and decide what they like and what they don't like that then can serve as a bridge for them beyond high school so that they're that much more prepared to enter into a field that they're truly passionate and interested in. Could you tell our listeners, maybe those that aren't aware of what EPIC is and how the thought process of how should we try this, this is going to be a little bit outside of the box um, than some of the other elementary schools. Can, can you give sure. an idea of what so that the, looks like? <clears throat> the backstory there is EPIC started out of a conversation around um, – trying to think about what education uh, could look like, different from what we've experienced. So it's really a whiteboard experiment mm -hmm. of trying to think through, if we were to build a school from scratch, what would it look like? Mm -hmm. And so there were some key things that were aligned at the time. We were working on our continued growth as a district. We were working on facility needs and crowding and pieces like that. We had some available spaces 
um, where we could move a central office to and open up the existing space for Epic Elementary. But then beyond that, it was really about determining what the programming would look like. And so identifying some key attributes for Epic included things like we wanted to ensure that it was very rooted in creativity. Mm-hmm. We want to ensure that they were project-based learning experiences. Um, we want to infuse technology, but then at the same time, we wanted to partner with um, business and community. community. Yep. And so when we opened its doors that first year, it was really with some key tenants in place, but then the understanding that it would evolve from year to year to year as we identify those things that work well and those things that don't work well. At the same time we were opening Epic, though, our other elementaries were thinking through what they could be doing differently as well. So what some people don't realize is that while Epic was rolling, we were expanding Project Lead the Way, which is very experiential, project-driven in some of our elementary schools. And what that caused us to do was to really just to be able to think about how we deliver content differently. And so we started with Epic, Project Lead the Way, some other examples of innovation, um, and then started training our teachers with pro- uh, pro- project-based learning through the Buck Institute. And so we're glad to say here, you know, three to five years later, we have about 70% of our teaching staff um, that has been formally cha- uh, trained in project-based learning. That's pretty wow. Uh, man, and I think, so, so how many, how, uh, obviously 13,000 students, what, what's the number of faculty? Or, or so we have about 1,700, 1,800. Jeez. Um, about half of them are certified. That can be a teacher, a librarian, counselor, administrator, kind of falls into that certified category. And then your support staff or operations makes up the remaining amount there. That's crazy. So with that amount of <laughs> responsibility from a leadership perspective, uh, not, not asking you to I, – I guess my question is, <clears throat> excuse me, the reality is as the educational landscape – is changing. My guess is there's some portion of the current teaching group, not just in Liberty, but across the country, that may be even resistant to reality or, hey, I wish it was, you know, eight rows and a school bell and these little tiny classes and sure. life was easy, right? Um, how, like, I'm, there's just so many questions that I have around how do you deal with eighth graders and cell phones and how do you deal with snapchat how do you deal with social media and how do you deal with teachers who may not be on board with the like the reality whether we like it love it hate it but things are different kids are going through things that um none of us can relate to right but we, to your point earlier we have to be uh, empath- to learn yeah change, yeah and so I, don't, I don't even know my question i'm rambling but <laughs> I, 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 I would love your perspective i i have to imagine that's been something that you've spent tons of time in in terms of training and teaching and equipping teachers to handle what actually takes place today. Yeah, so just under the broad umbrella of change, um, change isn't new. A lot of Mm -hmm. the innovations and technologies that you've mentioned are certainly new. But then I think if you go back, you know, 100, 150 years and you kind of pause and think about innovations that have come at us as a society, you know, we've had hesitation as it relates to back in the late 1800s, the pencil Right. And so then there's documentation and research about people's views of the pencil back in the day or, you know, the idea of secondary school and compulsory attendance and kind of the change that that brought along um, to the Cold War or Cold War era and a shift in focus on science. And, you know, fast forward, you know, 
different movements along the decades that have caused angst, mm. but then we've somehow come around and solved or tried to figure out and continue to move and take steps forward. Mm. So then as we think about that, just this last month, um, we've been talking about this notion of polarities, the idea that there are a lot of polarities that exist. And you know, pick any topic. There's typically multiple perspectives or points of view on any given topic. And it's not for the purpose of creating winners and losers, but as educators, as leaders, and I think in most communities, you know, one of the, the largest bodies is your school district. Hmm. How do we approach polarities when they exist and navigate toward some centrist perspective and how we can take in multiple perspectives and charting a course forward rather than being forced to pick one side or the other? Pro-technology, anti-technology, there's value and benefit to balance in the middle. Um, And so that's what we're talking about now. And I think that's probably even more reflective today, more so than ever, um, given our culture and society we live in, and the need to be able to strike that balance and value multiple perspectives. Um, The other piece to it is you kind of forecast through, there's a whole lot of change that we have no idea what it's going to look like virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, and the implication that that has on classrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even a decade ago, who would have thought that just any question you have, you can throw into Google and, and get, get an answer. answer for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a lot of good that comes out of that change, but it also causes us as learners or as adults even to be able to stop through and think through, okay, what's, what's the sweet spot, so to speak, um, so that we're really incorporating the change or the technology as needed, but at the same time mindful as to the implications it's having on our young people. I love your perspective, change isn't new. That's such a great thing to keep in mind that even though we have change to work through and deal with, Mm -hmm. that's not a new concept. Right. Right. may happen at a little faster pace these days. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Brooke's going to move us in a different direction here real quick. Before we go there, um, Seth Godin is is a marketing kind of guru that you know, nerds like me read every day. And one thing, he, he, he blogs every day, and they're typically kind of short, impactful, kind of powerful statements. And, and, and a year or so ago, he wrote about education. And I'll probably butcher it, but I, if I remember correctly, he said there, there's two main goals in today's educational landscape. And the first was we have to teach young people how to solve problems, mm-hmm. and we have to teach young people how to be leaders. Um, and, and I'm sure it fa- from your perspective that falls short and, and, and it's maybe too simplistic, but I, I really do think it's a powerful way to kind of, as, even as we've parented to say, Hey, can you solve problems and you can, can you take the lead and, and go for it? <laughs> right. Um, how do you, how do you empower your, your faculty, the staff, the teachers, and ultimately these young people as we're going, as they're, you're sent out into this crazy you know, very ever-changing world and landscape. How are you teaching them how to solve problems and take the lead on stuff? We've figured that out. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a great question, actually, that we've been working to fold into our new strategic plan. Mm. And so a new component, and I think it fits here, is what we're referring to as a graduate profile. And our graduate profile is the idea that, yes, a student walks across at graduation with their diploma in hand, but what you don't see on that diploma are all of the skills that they've gleaned along the way. And I mean the skills outside of academics. Mm. Okay, so what we've done over the course of the last few months in soliciting feedback from our community, our students, because we 
want to hear what they have to say, parents, uh, faculty, staff, is we've solicited feedback on what we feel those attributes or those skills need to look like. And they come in five areas. And so on our profile, it's, yeah, the academic skills. We want them to have the academic skills. And that comes with both content knowledge, but then it also comes with the ability to analyze, to think critically, to problem solve, to your point, um, which I think project-based learning gives a very good foundation to that, to work through a project or an issue or a problem. Completely but, agree with but that. But then also think through what a successful failure looks like, um, because failure is inevitable. In addition to the academic pieces, the areas that are relatively new to us are what are the cultural skills that a student needs to have or a graduate needs to have to be able to interact with diverse populations um, as they work locally, but then also interact with people globally. Um, what are the personal skills that they need to have as a husband, a wife, a parent, a friend, um, whether it's self-care or balance and what that needs to look like. In addition to the academic, the cultural, and the personal what are the professional skills that they need to have, which has everything to do with um, kind of the social and soft skills in the workplace um, in terms of collaboration and creativity, communication, kind of those four C's. And then the last category that we would couple in on, into that would be just that entrepreneurial skill set or mindset. Not that we want every single kid to be an entrepreneur, but we do think that there's value in the entrepreneurial mindset or skills um, within any career or college degree pursuit that a kid may decide to embark on. Um, so I think that answers your question in terms of both problem solving. We want you to solve problems. Then we also want you to take the lead. So good. Um, so yeah, we're excited about unpacking that and really identifying what that looks like at the elementary level, the middle level, and the high school level, because those skills aren't just relegated to your senior year. We need to be working on those much earlier. All right, we're going to shift and get a little personal if you you're bet. okay with that. Um, we'll talk about some behaviors and motivations, but the question that I have for you is what consistent maybe daily behaviors have you taken along the way that have helped you stay grounded yet continue to learn and grow as you expand in your influence and career? Sure. Um, I'm actually reminded of a poem by William Stafford, and it's entitled, I think it's The Way It Is, and it talks about the thread and I was just reading it a couple days ago, and it's that thread that sticks with you throughout life, regardless of what changes you embark on or what issues, adversity you face. Um, and for me, it's probably no surprise, given my upbringing, that um, that thread for me is probably faith um, and my beliefs. Um, second to that, it's family. But then third, another common thread throughout my life has just been a passion for people. Um, sometimes that's difficult when you're dealing with that adversity, um, but I think that plays into my routines. So it was a few years ago where I came across the idea of a bullet journal and just that bullet journal where you are intentional every day about trapping a few key things. Mm -hmm. So for me, I start with, you know, what I read that morning during my quiet time. And then I focus on maybe some things that I'm grateful for, uh, jot a few of those things down. And then I jot down, you know, maybe some things that I need to do today my to-do list that I want to make certain that I get done. And then the last thing that I'll focus on is perhaps a reflection at the end of the day on what happened to me. Mm. So today my what happened to me bullet will be hanging out with you two mm. um, and talking through that conversation. Um, so that's something that I try to stay pretty regimented on um, in terms of trying to put some of those structures in place. That's so great. I, I love the coming back to it um, at the end of the day. I have, yeah. I'll have my lists or my things that I'll do or try to do daily, but 
in the middle of the chaos of the evening, I never mm-hmm. really think to be thoughtful at the end of the day about, okay, what, what did my day look like? Yeah. That, I really like that. Some days I, I remember to do that. Some days I forget. So. <laughs> sure. That's great. I, I, and I think I love the word you use trapped. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it probably wasn't an accident that you used that word, but I think especially a guy like me, I'm distracted by all sorts of squirrels and chasing random ideas Yeah, that it's, it's, at times, and Brooke's smiling, um, difficult to trap and and be intentional about space mm-hmm. and quiet. Yeah, <laughs> I love I love that word. Where you want your focus? You know. Right. Yeah, I love that word. Right. So, I think you know from a again, you would never volunteer this information, but you've been very successful by by the by the by the nature of your industry. You've been recognized as the superintendent of the year. Even in your acceptance remarks, you talked about the team, and you even kind of, um, uh, d- again, deferred the, the the comment. But by all intents, um, by all measures, you've you've been successful in your career. H- how would you define that, though? Um, and, and maybe what did like, you know, twenty eight year old trying to figure it out in the industry, Doctor Tucker, not at that time, Jeremy, um, mm-hmm. versus today? How would you? define success in both of those kind of landmarks and, and, and what does success mean to you today? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> so I've been at this 23 years now and worn just about every hat that there is, um, within a school district. Um, we've even driven a school bus at times. So I, I think that in and of itself is probably an, um, a value in my leadership and that I, I can, I can relate to just about every role. Um, so whether it's working with my finance director and my human resources folks or special education, you know, I, I've experienced that in, in a smaller district, you wear more of those hats, mm. whereas in a larger district, you have people to help you along the way. Um, so then fast forward from when I entered into education to where I'm at now, it's really just been my own willingness to learn. Mm. Um, in a lot of areas that I did not go to school for. I went to school for chemistry, and that bottomed out. That didn't work out. So then I shifted to history. Um, but then I, I have an ability to teach. And so I think that's probably the, another common piece throughout all of this is just my willingness to learn as well as communicate and message what I'm learning. And so um, – I still have a long way to go. I have a few more years out before retirement. And so I got into the superintendency uh, pretty early on. And there's not too many people that are my age that are in these roles. Um, so then you have to rely heavily on your mentors and your team around you. So when my cabinet came in and said, hey, we've nominated you for the superintendent of the year, um, they quickly told me, and you've got to fill out this application. The fun part about all of that is the ability for us as I was applying to be able to tell our story. Mm. And it's truly Liberty's story. So when people, you know, say congratulations on being the superintendent of the year, yeah, it, I, I appreciate it. Um, and I say thank you, but I'll quickly pivot and say, well, it's Liberty's recognition. It's not Jeremy Tucker's recognition because so much of what was told in that story is the work of our teachers, our administrators, support of our families, our board of education. Um, and so... I've got a plaque, <laughs> um, but if anything, I'm blessed to be part of the story. That's so amazing. Speaking our language, man. Tell your story. <laughs> I love it. You're speaking our language. Okay, so speaking of teaching, mm-hmm. if you were teaching young people, young superintendents, young folks along the journey, what would, and you you are 
asked to write a book. Yeah. What would you, what would be some big pillars in the book as you taught your own journey? It's something that I've been interested in actually is writing a book, but I've, it would have to have a, um, have to be rooted in music because I love music. Huh. What kind? Oh, you name it. Everything but really country. Really? Yeah. So being in Africa, I actually grew up with reggae. Love so it. people don't know that about me, but I love reggae. <laughs> so then as I think about the chapters of the book and I think about the content of the book, you first of all have to have a little bit of a personal history that then somehow informs the reader as to here's why the author is going here, mm. right? So then the, the two or three things that I think would be key themes or areas of focus would likely be my upbringing mm. in that it's unique. And so then what, what a lot of people don't understand is this idea of a third culture individual where you're perhaps born in one culture, but you grow up in a second culture that then creates a third identity, Wow! right? Mm. So you can call it multiracial. You can call it a variety of things, albeit I'm a white Caucasian male in a leadership role, I very much identify as a third culture person. Wow. Uh, because there are certain pieces that I'm very much African, but then there are certain pieces that I'm very much an American, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't, you don't ever walk away from either of those. You don't grow out of it. So I think that would set the stage for me. But then in that second piece would likely be that thread that I mentioned earlier in terms of a passion for people. And I, I would credit that to my parents um, and ability to travel over the years and take on a variety of responsibilities and projects and roles that were impactful on a very um, human element or human level mm -hmm. um, and making a difference for community for years to come. Um, and then the third piece that I would say is just that, that ability to, in my world of education, be a continuous learner. Um, and that you've, you've never reached a point that you've figured it out. Um, and so that if I ever get complacent, it's time for me to move on. Um, and hopefully that, that constant ideal or churning around learning um, causes you to grow and just get that much better. So so good. That's, get, the rough, that's the rough draft. That's good. That's a great – I can't wait to read it. <laughs> oh, sure. I can't wait to read it. Um, do you get back to Africa at all, or have you? We haven't been back in a long time. Uh, before my wife and I got married, we actually worked a kids' camp cool. in West Africa and got a chance to go back, and she got to visit where I grew up. Um, there's actually a lot of instability right now in the region that we grew up in, mm. um, and there are some travel warnings, travel bans. I don't know that we'd actually make it back to where I live, mm. um, but we could, we could probably get close. I'd like to take my kids back at some point so that they have an appreciation for it. Yeah. So. Before Brooke wraps us up, um, <clears throat> I'm just curious also, as I imagine, like an athletic director or mm -hmm. president of a university, your time pressure is a lot Sure, to be at certain things and certain community events and certain football games and all the different things that you're required to be at. How do you guys juggle kind of the pressure and responsibility of your time, and how do you make sure that there's some... There's balance. some space, yeah, balance right. with, with family. And, and So with a, we're trying to figure that out with a high school freshman and a middle school uh, kid right now that are getting involved in more activities. But you're right, there is a lot that pulls you in a lot of direct directions as far as schedules and activities in the evenings. And really, um, you've got to pick and choose, but you've got to also have that balance in there. And I appreciate a Board of Education that um, supports me, supports our family, um, and that when you're in those roles, university president or, you know, a 
high profile athletic director or even in a, a district superintendent role. Um, it's not about the individual, it's about the family mm. and that we kind of live in a fishbowl. So when we're at an event or an activity, people see us or they know us and they watch us and see how we interact with our kids. And sometimes it's great. Other times we're getting onto them um, like everybody else. Um, Come to our we, house, we know that. Yeah, <laughs> we know that. And we've accepted that. And mm. we've just learned that over the years. Um, and so it is truly about prioritizing. But as our kids get older, our priority is with them. And consequently, the activities we go to are probably more their activities. Sure. Um, but then we also want to try to get around and see the great things going on in other schools and campuses. So there's a there's also a, a large element of community and civic engagement, which is unique in Liberty because it's not just you know the Liberty side; it's the Kansas City side and then the Northland side. Um, so we're really constantly involved in kind of those areas within the community and within the civic arena. That's awesome. We appreciate you sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeremy, your story is so. So unique and really great. Thank you for being willing to be here with us today. We ask all of our guests the same five questions to end our time. It's called our speed story section. So yeah. are you ready? Let's <laughs> do it. it. All right. The, the last book you read and or listened to. Yes. Um, it's actually called uh, Better Together. Hmm. And it's a, by an author, Tom Vander Ark. And we actually worked through this as a board of education. And um, it's really about thinking through education differently. And so it's on the professional side um, in terms of my, my reading recently, but that's also helping uh, kind of chart our course as far as providing experiential learning opportunities for kids. Super. Question two, what would you do right now if you weren't afraid? If I wasn't afraid, um, I like whitewater kayaking. Ooh. And I've dabbled with it over the years, but I'm probably not as skilled as I would want to do want to be but if I were as skilled as I could be then I'd take on a, a pretty hairy torrential type river awesome um, successfully again so. <laughs> I love it yeah. I love it beyond the reggae insight that you provided <laughs> earlier what's one thing that if people knew that you did that they think you're crazy or weird oh goodness um crazy or weird yeah that's a tough one um some people would say a lot of different things that I say or do are crazy <laughs> or weird but um, when I was a kid growing up, we used to shoot fruit bats Whoa. and we would like actually like eat them. Um, we'd put them over a campfire and we'd actually eat them. That's pretty weird. That's, um, that so doesn't that, happen much in Liberty. No, not, not in Liberty, Missouri. <laughs> They're protected. Um, but in West Africa, we had these massive mango trees that had all these fruit bats on them. And we would, as kids go out and take our BB guns and put a little campfire together and we'd actually eat fruit bats. So what we don't do, they, we don't do that do anymore. Taste like? You can imagine chicken, chicken. Okay. Yeah, you got <laughs> it. That's great. All right. What is your favorite place on earth? Uh, it's probably twofold. We talked about third culture, culture, so I've got two. I've got one in the United States, one in Africa. The one in the United States is probably Yosemite National Park mm. um, in kind of the back country. Um, we like hiking and backpacking. Um, the other one is on the opposite side of the earth, and that's in the Sahara Desert where I grew up. There was a quartz uh, outcropping that was just in the middle of the sand dunes and the mm. sand, but it was this like a quartz mountain that as a kid I used to climb up and play on with my um, and you could just see for miles. And so when you were there in the evenings, you could start seeing um, kind of the campfires along the horizon wow. as nomadic tribes would set up their camp for the night. Um, but that's a pretty vivid memory of my childhood. Man, that's so cool. All right, last one, kind of heavy one. When it's all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? 
Um, I think it's that thread we talked about earlier, and that's just that common thread of care and compassion for people. Mm. Um, I think a close second to that would be um, maybe my ability to teach. Mm. I think those are probably the two the two most meaningful things to me that I want to I want to pass along some way somehow. So good. That's so good. Yeah. Brooke, any closing remarks? No. So I'm I'm a better person for having heard your story. Well, you're very kind. Thanks so much for your time, Jeremy. Thank you both. Jeremy, thanks so much, man. Thanks, y'all. We really appreciate you listening today. We know you have a ton of places where you can give your attention, so thanks for being with us. If you'd be so kind, please leave us a review and subscribe to our show so others can hear about the stories over here at Guild Stories. And a big thanks to Dr. Jeremy Tucker, Superintendent of Liberty Public Schools, whose story was such a fascinating one to be a part of. Until the next show, let your life tell a great story. Thanks for listening.